Well, good morning once again. If you've got a copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, will you make your way over to Acts chapter 1 this morning? Acts chapter 1. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, there's a black Bible in front of you. That is page 1139. It's a New International Version, so that is what I'll be preaching from this morning. A New International Version, uh, Acts chapter 1. If you're a guest with us this morning, we were picking up mid-series in uh, this series called The Long Story Short, and we found that there's four different acts to this series. And so it's an 18-week sermon series, and so we kind of broke it up into four smaller chunks uh, to be able to talk about what really God is doing through all of Scripture. Now, we know we haven't covered every single page of Scripture. We're trying to get through some of the big ideas. It's and so when we started out uh, back in September, we talked in the, in the first act of how it all began, creation. How, how did all things uh, come together? And then secondly, we talked about the fall and how everything fell apart, how all the pieces started to just get disheveled and how all of that uh, got kind of messed up. And then thirdly, uh, this latest section, we've been talking about redemption. In the New Testament, we see when Jesus is re-entered into uh, our daily lives when he was born in a manger, that redemptive process is how it all began to turn around. And so that's the, the part of the series we're in this week. We're going to be closing this little section uh, right here. But then the fourth section we'll be beginning is restoration, how it will never end. We will begin that next week. And so our, interestingly, this year, uh, as we go into the Advent series, which will begin next week, we'll actually be in the book of Revelation for Advent, to be able to talk through as we, we look at this baby in the manger, what does it mean about the coming king who is coming one day uh, to redeem us all and restore us all. So today, uh, as, as we look, so next week we'll be dealing with unveiling King Jesus, uh, but today we're going to be talking about the church. And as we talk about the church, we're going to kind of overview through the book of Acts and even the epistles. We're trying to cover a lot of material here. Uh, but we're going to just talk about what is the church and what did God mean for the church. And if God, if he allowed everything to begin to turn around in this long story short, uh, what did he do through the church? So the church, I wanted to put out there this morning, is the church is not a tradition. The church is not a place. The church is the people of God living out the purpose of God. The church is the very people of God living out the purpose of God. This week, I hope you had a big Thanksgiving meal. I hope that you ate to your heart's delight. Uh, if you smell a good fragrance in the room, uh, there's an Advent meal after the service this morning. We had a meal last week, and we have an additional meal this week. And if you uh, want to join us after the service, we'd love to have you be a part of that. Uh, we're going to enjoy that downstairs after the fellowship. Uh, in the dining hall uh, for some fellowship and then be able to do some service together as we kind of transform this room into the Christmas season. Uh, as we look at that uh, Thanksgiving meal, it is, a, is one of my favorite meals. Uh, another one of my favorite meals is uh, known here in Western New York as the Friday night fish fry. Anyone else in favor of the Friday night fish fry? Okay. So growing up, I actually didn't know really about the Friday night fish fry. It just wasn't part of my kind of culture, but I married into an Irish Catholic family, and so the Friday night fish fry became a, a staple for us as a family. Um, this morning, I'm going to tell you about the first fish fry I ever remember having, and that was when I was in high school. I was, 
uh, in uh, the freshman year in high school, I was in the wrestling tournament. I had made it to the state qualifier. It was held here at UB, and so I was doing fairly well. And so after I made weight and had uh, one wrestling match on a Thursday evening, uh, we got to go that night. We stayed in a hotel, and we went out to eat, uh, and I had my first fish fry, and it was incredible. Let me tell you what. I mean, it, it filled me up in ways I had never been filled up before. <laughs> and, and there's something about uh, that fish fry that, like, man, I, I came back the next morning for the wrestling tournament, and all of a sudden I had new uh, unknown powers that I had never had before. I had once been a weak wrestler who had lost all of his weight and didn't know whether or not I would win any matches, and I actually didn't intend or didn't think that I was going to win any in the next round, and I won all of, I was an unseated, uh, I was kind of the Cinderella story in the bracket, and I started winning match after match after match, all thanks to my Friday night fish fry. And on Thursday, it was on Thursday night, yes, interestingly enough, thanks for keeping me, it was on Thursday night, so it was a Thursday night fish fry for all of you fact checkers out there. <laughs> so what ended up happening is the second day of the tournament, if you're a wrestler, you understand this, but each, each night after the tournament, you have to weigh in. And so what had ended up happening is that in my grand scheme of this big run that I was having in this awesome time in the tournament, I had gained four and a half pounds overnight. And so now, because I was not eliminated from the tournament as I once thought I was going to be, I had to lose in three hours four and a half pounds in order to continue on in the tournament. And so there at UB, I began so I was fortunate in a lighter weight class, and so as all the other wrestlers are continuing, I'm running in the halls. I have all my sweatshirts on and, and rubber suit. and those. If you've been in this, this world, you understand, like, I'm trying to lose all the water weight I can possibly lose. And uh, they had a sauna there at UB, so that was pretty useful um, to be able to try to lose all of this weight. And my final weigh-in time was at 11 o'clock p.m. was the last time that you could weigh in that night. So I needed to get weighed in by 11 o'clock, and at 10 minutes to 11, I was 0.2 pounds away from being able to make my weight. And, and myself, along with these other uh, people who had let themselves get overweight and are trying to scramble and get in at the last minute, I started to notice around the gym, there were people standing on their heads against the wall all the way around the room. Apparently, there's a trick, particularly in a digital scale, that if you stand on your head, you can run up to the scale and somehow, or at least we thought so, it, it would trick the scale into losing 0.2, pounds. So I was out of options. So I took my place on the wall. So, it looks something like this. <sighs> so this is kind of a vulnerable place to be. And so as I sat here and I thought, one day I'll be a pastor and I'll be able to tell this story. And I thought about the fact 
this is a vulnerable place to be, and people don't really like being vulnerable. In fact, we do all that we can to not be vulnerable, right? And so as we are in vulnerable situations, we do all that we can to get away from that. But if you're in a situation like this and you have to lose 0.2 pounds and run over to the scale, you can't really leave the vulnerable situation. And so you just have to remain and remain and remain. And if you happen to be years later preaching a sermon where you thought you'd be able to remember three points while you were upside down <laughs> against the wall, you might realize that it's hard to remember things uh, from this point. So I'm going to have to come down from here. So. So if you imagine with me, if you had your annual review, if you had your annual review, and there was 57 positive things that your boss said about you, and there was one thing that he had to say was an area for improvement, what's the one thing that stays in your mind regardless of how many positive things there are? That one edge or that one moment of vulnerability. And actually, when you come down to it, if you talk to people and you talk to people about love, what they'll begin to tell you is the stories about the one time where their heart was broken. If you ask people, <clears throat> if you ask people about belonging, they'll tell you the story about the one time that they were excluded. If you ask people about being connected, they will tell you the one story about the time that they were disconnected and ostracized. Why? Because of vulnerability. Because that's the area that is most difficult for us to live. And the reality is, is in the culture that we are in today, we numb vulnerability at all costs. We make sure that we never feel vulnerable, which is why we're the most medicated, overweight, in-debt people that have ever existed. Uh, we are addicted. We are dangerously unhealthy, all because we want to numb vulnerability. So that's part of my backstory. And as we get into this, I want to talk to you this morning about the backstory of the church. And you'll see that vulnerability plays a part in it as well. So if you've got your Bibles open, you're there in Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. And as we begin reading, we're going to look at the backstory of the church. Now, as a church, we use these terms upward, inward, and outward. As we did the, the announcements earlier, I said these are the three things that matter to us. And as we talk about the local church, you'll find that, again, these themes will come in again and again and again. And I want to just point them out to you here first. But if you're using that white sheet of paper as a fill-in this morning, your first fill-in, it should be no surprise to you, is the word vulnerability. Vulnerability produced humility. Vulnerability produced humility. We're in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. Then they gather around him and ask, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? If you were with us last week, this is where Brian dug in a lot of his time talking about the kingdom. And really, what did that look like? Verse 7, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. 
And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. And they were looking up intently into the sky as he was going, and suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. So the disciples are standing flat-footed, looking up into the sky. If you've ever been to New York City, spent any time there, it is, it is unbelievable how many times yourself or people that you will notice as you're walking around Manhattan or Times Square where people are just looking up and they will walk into people, they will walk into traffic, they will walk anywhere because they're completely oblivious to the fact that they're looking up at what's happening around them. And so this posture, I want to be able to say this upward posture as vulnerability will produce humility. The disciples thought, certainly now must be the time for the kingdom of God to be at hand. They had waited. Jesus had told them. They, they knew that he was the Messiah. They knew that he was the one that they had been waiting for. And yet they thought that he was going to come like David with a sword in his fist, as it was prophesied, that there would be this Messiah who would come, but they misunderstood what that looked like. And so now Jesus had been crucified. He had been put in a grave, but he rose again. Now he must come as their valiant warrior. And they were still mistaken. You see, again, here's the big storyline. God made us. We sinned against him. Death comes into human history. There was a promise made in the book of Genesis chapter 3 that Jesus, the Messiah, the one was going to come. But how long were they going to have to wait for Jesus to come? A couple thousand years. Well, that's a pretty long time. And they wait a couple thousand years for Jesus to come. Now, that's a long wait. That's, that's like the longest wait possible. That's like worse than dial-up or 3G network, right? Like it is, it is a long wait. And so as they come into that, Jesus comes. He lives without sin. He dies for the sins of all people, and he rises from death. And we see in the opening pages of, of the book of Acts that he has been walking around the earth for more than 40 days, evidencing his, his resurrection. And he told them, here it is. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and the uttermost parts of the earth. I've got a global mission. I've got something huge for you to be part of. You've come and you've waited a thousand years. Now I want you to go and tell everybody that I've come, but wait for the Holy Spirit. But wait here until you have further instructions. And then he ascends into heaven. And they are shocked and reminded once again, as you and I need to be reminded again and again and again, that his ways are higher than ours. As they looked up into the sky that day, as the angels spoke to them, they are shocked by the, the moment that they are experiencing and realizing, wait a minute, God has a different plan than anything I could have fathomed here. Secondly, we'll see that vulnerability produces or produced unity. Vulnerability produced unity. So as we fast forward a little bit, if you turn over a few pages to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. To fill in the gaps, the Holy Spirit has come. The church has experienced Pentecost. The scripture tells us that they were being added daily. The numbers, those who were being saved. 
And by this point, we have seen the church in Acts has had a number of wins as this young church. Their preaching was a win. Their teaching was a win. Evangelism, win. Church planting, win. Baptism, win. Converts, win. Growth, win, win, win. Acts chapter 6, we see a loss, a failure. We find them exposed and vulnerable. But through that vulnerability, we'll see that it produced unity. Acts chapter 6, verse 1. In those days when a number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorius, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenius, and Nicholas from Antioch, a converted to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. This was a critical moment for the church. They were, as I said, they were exposed and vulnerable. This could stop all the momentum that they had. This division that had long been there and now was going to be coming to the surface once again. This is the beginning. This is the birthplace of deacons. They're like little baby deacons here. Like we take their cute little pictures and you snap. This is the beginning. This is the start of what we see as deacons and how deacons serve. So that's where they get their beginning. But the reality is, as this grows, it demonstrates that unity is formed because they're able to meet the needs of these people. And as they're meeting the needs, that there's a responsibility, there's further leadership opportunities that were necessary there within the local church. And as they gathered together and as they bonded together and they found unity together, they found ways to serve together. All because they were vulnerable, realizing that they were not getting the job done in and of themselves. So as we continue this backstory of the church, we're, we're looking through this, the lens of upward, inward, outward. We see that they found humility through vulnerability. Vulnerability produced unity. And then thirdly, vulnerability again produces mobility. Turn over a few more pages, if you will. Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. So the church was experiencing vulnerability through internal opposition. There are these two factions within the church that they, they had to deal with, be able to take care of the widows and making sure that they were taking care of all widows that they had within the church. That was this internal opposition that they had to deal with. But the church was also vulnerable to external opposition as well. And there are many times that these two forces will come against the church at the same time. This way that the enemy works. And as they come together, this external persecution and internal opposition all kind of fires all at the same time. Acts chapter 8 verse 1 says this, And Saul approved of their killing him. This is Stephen, if you want to put that in parentheses just so you know who we're talking about. Stephen, the first martyr. On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for them. 
But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Those who had been scattered and preached the word wherever they went. Now notice here where the church is mobilized to as they undergo persecution, as they've found themselves to be vulnerable of the attack of someone like Saul. Notice where they go. They go to where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. It's implied the uttermost parts of the world. The church looks like it will be destroyed. Their leadership, the apostles, have been separated from the rest of the disciples. The the leadership is left there in Jerusalem. Everyone else is scattered in every direction. The followers of the way, the followers of the gospel are split in all directions. But remember, we said at the beginning, the church is not a place. It is not a location. It is not a building. It is not a tradition. The church, we are the people lived out for God's purpose. We are God's people living out God's purposes. As I said at the beginning, the church is really about transformation through vulnerability. Transformation through vulnerability. We're doing a small remodel project in our home, maybe a large remodel project, I'm not sure. I guess it depends on the size of your project. It's pretty big to us. We've been doing a, a basement office and kind of putting some things together there and working on it. And as I've been working uh, in the evenings the last few nights, uh, I was listening to an audio book by Chip and Joanna Gaines. Anyone ever heard of those guys? Yeah? And so their audio book talking about, uh, it's called The Magnolia Story, just kind of how things all came together for them. And the reality is, if you know anything about their television show and the way that they, they have this show called Fixer Upper and they do a lot of different things, um, that that show came after years and years of work. And they had already established themselves in their community of Waco, Texas, doing a lot of these things. And that was basically how the show found them. They were already at work. The show did not create the activity. The show just documented the activity of what they were already up to. If you've ever watched that show, Fixer Upper, what they have at the end of every episode after they've they've worked on this house, and many other remodel shows are the same way, but they have a big photo that they pull across and blocked from view of what the house has become, and it shows what the house was. Here's where we began, the before and the afters, which is going to be demonstrated. And as, as it's pulled away and as the camera pulls back and you see and you watch the faces of the homeowners, of all that they demonstrated, the, the house, they look back at that house, a complete transformation has occurred. It is no longer the dumpy house on the street corner that they, they purchased for a few thousand dollars. Now it is this beautiful home that they can raise a family in. Transformation. So the backstory of the church is vulnerability. The backbone of the church really comes down to transformation. If you've ever read the book of Acts, you'll see this kind of pivot in the book of Acts. The first nine or ten chapters are going along and they're telling the story of all of the apostles, particularly Peter, and how his ministry has laid itself out. But we see this pivot, and we begin to talk and learn about the Apostle Paul and his Damascus Road experience, where he very much, in Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, he becomes blinded, paralyzed, and yes, vulnerable before God. When I was in college, we we had a choir tour that we traveled, and we would come and sing at churches kind of like ours. And one of the songs that our choir director selected was this horrendous, awful song about the Damascus Road experience. And we sang beautiful songs by Handel's Messiah, and we we sang all these gorgeous pieces, and we sang this, this like, 
fingernails on the chalkboard type of song. And, and the audience would just, they never clapped for it. They didn't know what to do. There's no amens afterwards. But this song was written, and the reason the choir director said, we're doing this song because it's in Scripture, and we can't always talk about the positive things of Scripture. And so the, the voices in the choir would sing these lines of, why, why, why? You know, like, why have you forsaken me? And it, it was awful. But Jesus is asking, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is asking Saul, why? And on that road, he is humbled before God. And then we find this side story of how Ananias is also called before God. And they are unified together as Ananias is going to put his arm around Saul, the Christian murderer, the Christian persecutor, and bring him along in the faith. And wouldn't you know, the very church that he is persecuting sends he and Barnabas out as missionaries to reach the world. Isn't that a beautiful story of what God does through transformation? And so through that, we follow the apostle Paul now we know him as, because again, with that tradition, the religious tradition of, of the Jews, is that when there's something significant happens in your life, you change your name. We follow that tradition somewhat, current day, with, with when someone gets married, they'll change their name and say, from this point on, uh, I'm going to look at life differently now that I'm married. And so Saul becomes Paul. So if you'll turn over a few pages to Romans chapter 12. This is page 1189, if you're using those black Bibles. Romans chapter 12. Now this is written by the apostle Paul. He himself has experienced tremendous transformation before a holy God who has changed him from a murderer to a preacher, an apostle, a church planter, an evangelist. And so what you'll see first, we saw vulnerability as the backstory, but we'll see the backbone of the church is transformation. So your first fill in there is transformation produces humility. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. If anyone has taught you how to read scripture before, if you see that word therefore, you look to see what it is therefore, correct? So the first number of chapters of the book of Romans is building this treatise, this doctrinal statement of who Jesus is and why we need to worship him. And then there's this doxology in, in Romans chapter 11 about worshiping this holy God. And then we have this transitional word, therefore, do what? I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Continue with me. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distrib distributed to each of you. Here in this passage, Paul talks about transformation. He highlights transformation as an exercise of the mind, that transformation is going to occur 
in the mind. Jesus, on the Sermon of the Mount, he talks about murder and adultery are committed in the mind before they are ever actually physically committed. And so when we talk about transformation internally, it's going to have to change things externally. For believers to have a change that's going to come out, redeeming qualities that are going to come out of us, first there's going to have to be a changing, a renewing of the mind. A spiritual mind is required for this type of transformation to occur. He also says, don't think of yourselves highly, but think of yourselves as humbled before God. Why? Because none of us in our own strength, none of us in our own power have the ability to do this renewing, transforming, changing of the mind. We cannot do that in and of ourselves. We're going to need to be humbled before God so that he will do that. There's an author and a pastor, his name is Craig Rochelle, and there's in a marriage uh, uh, counseling book that I read this one line and it just stuck with me and it goes with this verse. So if you took a glass and you took a Nerf football and you took it and squeezed it and crammed it into the glass, you are conforming that Nerf football into the shape of the glass and you jam it in the glass, it appears to fit in that glass, it appears to have taken the shape of that glass, you are conforming it. And oftentimes, spiritually, that's what we think that our job is as the local church. We think that we just need to cram one another into this spiritual glass. But what happens when you pull that football back out of the glass? It pops back to its original shape, right? What happens scripturally is the transforming and the renewing of your mind that is no longer the same substance anymore. It is not a conforming. It is a transforming and becoming new. So transformation produces humility, knowing that God is the only one who is going to be able to transform us. Secondly, <coughs> transformation produces unity. Verse 4. For just as each of us has one body with many, many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is encouraging, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, then do so diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor, your, honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Now, as you know, we could dig in for weeks here. We spent some time last year in the book of Ephesians and just looking at what, it, what does it mean we are better together, the unity of the body of Christ. When we look at this passage, we ought to be able to see that the church is unified to help Christians do what? To activate and embrace their spiritual gifting. And this, this list walks us through. If you have the gift of giving, then give. If you have been given the gift of leadership, then lead. If you have the gift of prophecy, then prophesy. That clarification I want to make there for us too. As we look at prophecy and we look at it in the New Testament, a lot of times we get this concept that prophesying is, is future telling. And, then, and when we look at the Old Testament, we look at what were the prophets doing, they just kept coming back to this one statement, thus saith the Lord. 
And yes, there was some future telling in what they were doing, but I believe that a, a prophet and, and the understanding of what we look at through the New Testament is the prophet is going to continue to come back to the point of saying, what does the Bible say about this? What does God have to say to us about this? Those are great ideas. That's a great strategy. That's a great financial plan for your church. What does the Bible have to say about this? That might make sense to you financially, moving in and living together. Maybe that makes sense to you financially. But what does the Bible have to say about this? That is the role of the prophet. If it is to lead, do so diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Wouldn't it be ironic that someone who is a mercy shower to do so with a frown on their face? Seems a little odd, doesn't it? In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, one of the only sermons I ever remember my dad preaching. He was a deacon in our church. But he started that, it says, if you have all of the gifts but you have not love, it is like a clanging cymbal. And he brought in a pot, and he was just banging the mess out of it while he was trying to preach. You couldn't hear a word he was saying. Why? Because you can't hear anything someone is saying if they have not love. Never be lacking in zeal. Keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. So Paul uses this analogy of the body. It is a beautiful word picture. Every day, every year, we learn more about the human body and the way that things interact with one another and the complexity and the simplicity yet of it all and the beauty of what God has created. And there is that same type of intricate connectivity within members of the body of the local church. Serving in the mission of God is often understood as a one-size-fits-all endeavor, and that's just a mistake. We do not all serve in exactly the same way at exactly the same time doing exactly the same things. God has gifted you uniquely to how he has gifted me. And so that should be demonstrated and shown differently in your life and in your walk and the way that you live. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's why we try to remind one another with this kind of tagline that we use often that we want every man, woman, and child to be able to find their place or find your place here at Randall Church. Why? Because your place is different than the person next to you. Because as we are all part of the body of Christ, some of us are hands and feet, others of us are mouthpieces, other people are serving in ways that you would never realize or understand because they want to be so much in the background. But yet, those are the people who make this church move forward week after week, year after year. That is the beauty of unity in the body of Christ. We want you to find your place. So transformation produces humility. Transformation produces unity. So Paul has addressed this upward relationship with God. He's addressed the inward relationship with other fellow believers in the body of Christ. Now he transitions outward. Take a look at this. Transformation produces mobility. Verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. 
If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The church must get outside of its own doors. It must get outside of its own location. In this case, as he's talking to those in Rome, they need to get outside of the city of Rome. We can't be, the church cannot be in the eyes of everyone, as is discussing here, if we are only in the eyes of one another within the walls of this building. We must be out where we can be seen, be heard, be touched, be vulnerable. And it wasn't to be seen, be heard, to be touchable by friendly people. Paul is specifically talking about those who persecute you, those who are your enemies, those who hate you and despise you and want to do ill to you. Those are the people that you need to be at peace with. Live at peace and God will repay, it says here. That's tough. That's tough. That's not going to happen instinctively. That is not something that makes sense to us. That's not something that we sign up for at the first opportunity, the first kiosk that's put out in the foyer. That's not what we sign up for, is it? That's going to take a transformation, a renewing of the mind. And where is that going to happen? Through God interacting and moving and changing each and every one of us. Let me go back to the kid who's standing up against the wall in his underwear. Upside down like an idiot. Yes, I made weight that day. Somehow, I don't understand how it works. 0.2 pounds, I ran over to the scale, stood on the scale, and 0.2 pounds just disappeared into the upside down air. I don't know how it works, but it did. But really, that picture of vulnerability, the reality of that moment, of that space and time, is probably a picture of something bigger that was going on. Bottom line was, and I don't know what image you had of me at that point, but I was losing weight so that I could make the 98-pound weight class. So I was a tiny little kid, right? But not so tiny because I was losing somewhere between 15 and 20 pounds to be able to make that weight class. And there was this desire in me for some reason that that was this drive, this push, was the only way that I would be able to fit in. The only way I would be able to be on the team or be part of what was going on was if I made weight. And there's this vulnerability inside of me knowing that I couldn't seem to do that. I'd been on the wrestling team for three or four years, and I had just gotten beaten up for three or four years. And so this was my big chance, my big opportunity And so I would do just about anything to feel like I could fit in. The reality was it was a difficult place to fit in. I was not fitting in for one reason or another. I had taken a lot of abuse in the locker room. My my locker had been broken into a number of times, and no one would ever come fess up to who it was. I had money stolen from me often. It's just kind of a brutal spot to be in. And yet these were the very people that I wanted to feel connected with. I was losing a dangerous amount of weight in dangerous ways. At that point, there wasn't the rules that there are now in high school sports. In 1997, uh, there was three college uh, athletes and then uh, one in high school in Florida as well. One of those college athletes from Wellsville, New York, literally passed away, 21 years old, while crawling to the scale to try to make weight. It's absurd. It's absolutely absurd. 
And so there were some changes to the rules and how things went together and so that we wouldn't be able to drop that much weight and put ourselves at risk from a health standpoint. But the bottom line was uh, that, that me fitting in or trying to be part of that, like that was the, the vulnerable kid in his underwear upside down against the wall trying to do the most ridiculous thing to try to make weight was really just a snapshot of all the things, the ridiculous things that I was doing to try to fit in or try to be part of the people who were around me. And during that time in my life, I was getting into a lot of fights and a lot of arguments with people. And the irony is, is the fights I was getting in with people were not actually with the people who I was trying to fit in with or trying to be on the team with. They were with people who were slightly smaller or weaker than me, and they were the ones I was going after and taking out aggression that I had for others on them. It's a pretty bad scenario to be in. I went to work that summer. I took the spring. I usually tried to be in sports every semester, and I just kind of wore myself out. I took that spring semester. I didn't play a sport. And then that summer, I went to work at a Christian camp. And other years before that, I had gone to the camp, so I had my one week of the summer high camp experience. But it was different now if I was working at the camp. It wasn't just one week. It was like 10 to 12 weeks. And somewhere in there, I started to learn and understand what this idea of the unity of the body of Christ really looked like. And I found it demonstrated for me that there were people who actually loved me for who I was, where I was in that moment. People who embraced me for being vulnerable for who I actually was. And so it was demonstrated for me was really the body of Christ. And in that, I found my true identity in Christ. And that process of the transforming and the renewing of the mind started somewhere in there. Do you understand the responsibility you have as the local church? That there are those who are just as vulnerable as I was, and it might be you here this morning in that vulnerable state. Maybe you're not a 14, 13-year-old kid, but maybe you're dealing with things a lot deeper, a lot bigger than trying to socially fit in, but you're doing just as many things to contort yourself and twist yourself in all different forms and fashions all to numb yourself from being vulnerable. You see, I'm still learning how to embrace vulnerability, but I do believe that vulnerability leads to transformation. And so in that, I'm still learning that I am one of those people who have problems. I'm one of those people that need to be held accountable. I'm one of those people who needs to regularly confess my sins to a brother. I am one of those people who need to schedule annual counseling sessions. And that going to the counselor is not something that is a chore or a hard work. It is actually something that is incredibly healthy for any one of us to do. I am realizing I am one of those people with problems, and I hope that you realize that you are too. Why? Because those people, you and I, need the renewing and transforming of our minds. John chapter 8, 32 says, Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Every single time, every single time that I am or you are vulnerable, authentic, and real, and tell the truth, the truth will set you free. 
Jesus later says, he says, I am the truth and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. He builds himself around truth. Aren't you tired of trying to numb vulnerability? The truth is you can't selectively numb. What happens when you try to numb vulnerability, you also numb joy. When you try to numb vulnerability, you also, you also numb happiness and hope. You also will numb the ability to be at peace with one another, at peace with the world around you. You are numbing all of those things. Aren't you tired of being conformed to the patterns of this world? Do you want to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Long story short, big idea, the main thing that you should hear today, and it's printed in your outline there, Hebrews chapter 10, 22 through 24, gives us the same kind of snapshot again. Together, we will draw near to God in worship. Together, we will hold fast to the hope that we profess. Together, we spur one another to love and good deeds. First, you're going to have to have humility. Then there will be unity and mobility. That's what the church is about. And you'll find it again and again in Scripture that God is pleading with us. Let me transform you. Let me mold you. Let me make you into who I have called you to be. So if you bow your heads this morning, close your eyes, let me ask you this question. Today, will you be vulnerable enough to take the first step? Will you be vulnerable enough today to take the first step? For some of you this morning, and you may have heard this a number of times before, but that first step is to accept Jesus Christ into your heart, knowing that he is who he says he is. You've heard the story before, but this time you are accepting it. You are surrendering, saying, God, I believe you. Maybe you're already there. Maybe taking the first step of vulnerability today really is offering forgiveness to a friend, a family member. Maybe for something that happened this week around the Thanksgiving table. Maybe for something that happened 20 years ago. Will you be vulnerable enough to take the first step towards forgiveness? Or thirdly, maybe you need to intentionally make yourself available, present, to the community around you. You've been a part of this church for years and years and years. And you've yet to invite anyone else to be here. You have lived in a neighborhood for 5, 10, 15 years. And you have yet to make any progress towards relationships with anyone in that neighborhood. You've been going to that Tim Hortons for months and still don't know what the cashier's name is. Will you be vulnerable enough to take first steps towards what is really the transforming and the renewing of your mind? Dear Lord, we pray this morning that there would be willing, those willing today to take first steps. Lord, we love what we see in Scripture, how the church expanded and how the church grew. And it seems like there's win after win after win. Lord, we would love to see that in our city. 
We would love to see that in our church, in our congregation, but it must begin in our hearts. Transform hearts this morning, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.